congregation over the last well, several years is that, well, we are currently in the midst of a five-year focus, what we call a five-year focus, uh, a special concentration over this period of five years, a direction for individual lives. We're encouraging each other to give thought to how we can use our vocations to serve the gospel. What can we do to use our vocations to make them strategic for God? Now, there's four different variations on this that we're encouraging. One, for those who are either haven't chosen a vocation yet, or for those who are in early stages of vocation and can still adapt and develop. The question is, what is the best use of your resources, not only to make money, and not only to do something you find rewarding, but also to do something that's useful to the world and to the gospel of God? So how do you choose a vocation? that couples our concern for God's work with our abilities and our needs. Uh, that's the first option, is to choose a vocation. Uh, the second is, given the vocation we currently have, each of us currently has, in our current location, how can we leverage this? The income, the relationships, the kind of work we do, how can we leverage this to be useful to God? The third variation, choosing a vocation and using a vocation, the third variation is keeping your same vocation, but doing it in a different location, which is more strategic for the work of God. And this is what Ellie represents and why we have him come back and share. You know, he's still finding his way. It takes a while to figure out a new culture and a new situation. But keeping your same vocation, as he had here, and then going overseas where the needs are greater, and almost anywhere overseas, the needs are greater than they are here, the needs for the gospel. So how can he use his vocation, change his location, and be more strategically employed for God? And the fourth option, which Ellie also referenced other people doing, is changing your vocation and going into either tent-making missions or into uh, pastoring or into uh, evangelism, uh, uh, direct missions. So those are the four options and part of the five-year focus. And we'll, be in, we'll come back to that periodically, maybe once a quarter, and we'll have people sharing both about how they're doing it and as we look at the news, how other people are doing it. How can we use our job skills and our job context to be useful to God? Now, for today, as we begin a new year, we typically take a couple of weeks, and we will again this year, a couple of week break from our usual preaching roster to ask the question, you know, who are we? Who do we want to be? What are our core values? What do we want to build into our DNA? So that as life changes around us, as the circumstances, our environment, our context, all of these things change. What do we want to maintain steadfast as a community? And so we'll look today at the five core values that really guide and implement everything we do now. Since we've been doing this for several years, we've had these five core values for the last six years. Give me, identify one of our core values. Those of you who've been here for a while. What's one of our core values? A little louder? Okay, God-centered. Good. Now, somebody else give me another core value. Biblical. Okay. All right, now, okay, I wanted to see how long this would take 
because you know where these core values are. This is an open book test. Where are the core values written? And you see them every single week. Right on the front of the bulletin. So this is an easy question. And in fact, somebody designed a nice uh, logo to, to reinforce it. God-centered, biblical, transformational, communal, missional. And we want to take a look at these five core values this morning. Because this everything we do really feeds into this in one way or another. Now... It, these are five core values. You look at the logo we had for them. It's really, you can't say where it's, which is the most important, where it starts, where it ends. Obviously, God's the most important. We put God first. But actually, they all issue out of the fact that we seek to be biblical. They all support the idea that we want to be transformational, communal, and missional. So it's not like we're listing these in order of priority. But these are five crucial values. And this morning, we want to look at why are they so important to us? And how does it come out in our community? The first we'll start with is really this, is biblical. Because this is the foundation. This Certainly it's not more important to be biblical than it is to be God-centered. But we start with biblical is because this is where we find out what God is like. God's revealed himself to us in scripture. How else do we know who God is and how he wants to be worshipped and what he expects of us? It's through scripture. And so this is where we start. Now, each of these five core values... We identify as core because they're important to us. Well, they're important to Scripture. But each of them we highlight, too, is because they're countercultural. If we're going to honor God, if we're going to be what God's calling us to be and do what God's calling us to do, we're going to have to be countercultural. In each case, we're going to contrast the value that we're underscoring with the local contrast. So... The first value. We want to be biblical, not, not cultural. Sometimes this will mean that we'll be out of step with our culture. Sometimes it means that we can embrace some value within our culture. We don't always have to be antagonistic toward our culture, as the case that Pastor David prayed for in Kentucky today. We don't always have to oppose our culture. Sometimes we'll have to. Sometimes we'll support it. But here's why biblical contrasts with culture. Not because Christians are opposed to the culture. But here's why. Mark Smith is a professor of political science at UW. He's writing a book. It's about to be published. I've read reviews of it. I haven't read the book yet. The book is entitled Secular Faith. And here's what his thesis is. Much of America worries about churches like ours. Because they don't, don't, don't know churches like ours. Not, like the elite in the media. They kind of worry about churches like ours because they're not that familiar with us. Hey, I don't know about you. I'm a nice guy. Right? You wouldn't worry about me. But our culture worries about us because they're not that familiar with us. And what they're really worried about is, what is our agenda? You know, because often, the evangelicals who speak up tend to be strongly right-wing. And they want to govern the whole country by right-wing values. And the media, not always, but almost always, you know, largely tends to be liberal and left-wing. And so they're worried about these right-wingers and what they're trying to do about taking over America and forcing this back into being a Christian country. So a lot of the liberal press is worried about what we're trying to do, what they think we're trying to do. 
Now, Mark Smith, professor of political science at UW, has made a different point. He's taken this anxiety within the university, and he says, actually, that's not what's happening with these Christians. In his book, Secular Faith, what he says about us is that we say we're biblical, and to some extent, we try to be biblical, but we're really captured by our culture. So Mark Smith studied five contentious issues in the U.S. He studied slavery, he studied divorce, he studied homosexuality, he studied abortion, and he studied women's rights. Now, he argues from a historical and political perspective that in each of these cases, the church resisted cultural change. But that didn't make us biblical. All it made us was conservative. Because his point is not, not that we stood against it, but that we slowed it down. He said, basically, on each of these issues, the church may have started in a different place than the culture, and the, as, but as the culture, from your angle, left, left, left. As the culture moved left, so the church kind of moved, became more liberal. And he argues, and I haven't seen his statistical evidence, and I think he's wrong on slavery. I think he's being selective because some of the chief proponents of the anti-slavery movement in the 1800s were evangelical Christians. Now, if you go to the South, you could find some evidence for that thesis, but not from the... So, again, the thesis may not be sustainable at every point, and I haven't investigated his evidence. But he makes a very important point. That is, that we are highly shaped, even as Christians, we are highly shaped by our culture. And sometimes we're more shaped by our culture than we are by the Bible. Now, there's a term for this. Peter Berger is a sociologist at BU, and he coined the phrase that reality is socially constructed. Now, not to insult professors, and I used to be once, but so I know the inside thing. We, we, as professors, you tend to overstate something to make a point. And, and maybe reality really is not legitimately socially constructed, it's just socially conditioned. And maybe that doesn't even matter to anybody. Ah, some of you will be familiar with this language from the whole issue of gender. Right? With the transgender movement, what do we keep hearing? Gender is a social construct. You see, this is the same phrase, socially constructed. That argument is, gender is just something arbitrary that society has decided. It's not hardwired into us as human beings. It's just socially constructed. Now, I don't want to be talking about gender this morning. It's just an illustration to get you back to the language. Peter Berger, professor of sociology at BU, he argued that all of reality is socially constructed. What he meant by that was, Anything we do, why do we do it the way we do it? Oh, when Elliot goes to Taiwan, why does he have to learn new ways of doing some things? When I went to Singapore for the first time, I thought, boy, they do some odd things here. Or they do the same things in an odd way. Even something as simple as sweeping the floor is done differently in Singapore than it is in the U.S. Now, it makes great sense, actually, in Singapore and Malaysia to do it that way. And now that's the way we do it in our house in here in America. But think, these things are socially constructed. This seems reasonable. It just makes sense. Because everybody else is doing it that way. It's society that constructs it that way. And so the whole issue about, now, you know, now we've got our society which is moving from gay marriage. Immediately once the gay marriage legislation, once gay marriage was made legal across America, you can see the, the 
popular press, the TV shows. I watched a random TV show this week, one evening when I was tired, I was watching this show, and, and it clearly had moved from gay marriage to promoting transgender issues. Or, now our culture, you know, and so, so, so often, Christians in response to our culture, we've highlighted Christian, unique Christian sexual mores, sexual ethics. But biblically, Sexual ethics is a small piece of a much bigger picture. But we were willing to oppose that, and we overlooked some of the other differences between the Bible and our culture because we're so cultural. Very few Christians, historically, get as excited about CEO salaries as we do, say, about sexual ethics. But the Bible puts greed and sexual immorality on the same sin lists. So why do we highlight one and ignore the other? Because our culture highlights one and ignores the other. But now the SEC is requiring companies to post the CEO's salary in their annual reports. So now the culture is going to be more sensitive to issues of fiscal responsibility and greed. And so maybe the church will become more sensitive to these things. The whole point is this. We claim to be biblical, we try to be biblical, but often we're much more, we're more cultural than we are biblical. And so, one of our goals is to go back to scripture, week by week, to study scripture together and say, what is God really calling us to be? Not, not what does American culture invite us to be, but what is God really calling us to, to be? How are we to relate to him? How are we to relate to each other? What's he calling us to know and do and be and feel? This is what we're looking at. We're trying to construct spirituality biblically. Because you remember, as we've had this one-year survey over the last year, remember in Deuteronomy, when God was gracious and then called Deuteronomy to respond, how did he call them to respond? The book of the law will not depart from your hearts, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You shall teach it to your children. And be careful to do according to all that is written in it. As we go through the Old Testament history and the prophets, what the history, the historical writers did was they recorded Israel's fate, their history, and they compared it with scripture. And why did things go well? And when did things go well? And the historians in the Old Testament said when they followed God, when they followed the Bible. And then when did things go poorly for Israel? When they disregarded the Bible. And then Nehemiah and Ezra and the post-exilics. Why did Israel go into exile? Because they disregarded the Bible and the God who revealed himself there. And when they were invited back, what were they called to do? The minute Nehemiah builds the wall, what does he do? He has Ezra come and teach the law. Because salvation comes in harmony with the law. And so John chapter 6, Jesus himself said this. Jesus said something that was difficult for people to accept. John chapter 6. On hearing it. Many of his disciples, even his disciples, not the twelve, but the wider group of disciples, many of the disciples said, this teaching is too hard. Who can accept it? And Jesus, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, does this offend you? He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And he turned to the twelve and he asks, Do you also want to leave? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words 
of eternal life. From beginning to end, Scripture says, do we want to have a relationship with God? He's shown us grace. We celebrate grace at communion. And now he calls us to reciprocate. But, but how do we reciprocate? How do we know? From beginning to end, Scripture says, this is how you know. God has communicated his will and his ways. He's communicated himself in Scripture. And so we know God through Scripture. Second value is to be God-centered. Christian Smith is a sociologist, used to be at UNC, now at Notre Dame, wrote a book called Soul Searching. And he described our culture this way. Most people instinctively suppose that a religion exists to help individuals be and do what they want. Religion is not an external authority. God is not a divinity who makes compelling claims and demands on our lives, especially that we must change or grow in ways that we don't want to. Faith, Smith continues, makes one feel good and resolves one's problems. It's not a disciplined way of life that makes hard demands or changes people. God is treated as something of a cosmic therapist or a counselor, a ready and competent helper who responds in times of trouble, but who doesn't particularly ask for devotion or obedience. Now, now note, this Smith is writing as a sociologist. This is not his description of the Bible. This is his description of American culture after the largest ever survey of American high school youth. Ah, but this is not just youth, right? Where did the youth get the idea from? They get it from their parents. And so God becomes a therapist rather than a deity. And Smith, as a sociologist, can comment on it, recognizes it. We often don't recognize it when we turn to God to help us in times of trouble and ignore him when life is going well. The fundamental question we go to God with is, well, the first thing, the fundamental thing we go to God with is gratitude for all the grace he's shown us, again, as we celebrate in communion. But the fundamental question we go to God with is, how do we rightly reciprocate? You've done so much for us. How do we rightly respond? Smith analyzes American religion and says, religion is about God responding to the authoritative desires and feelings of people. In American religion, who's authoritative? Smith, as a sociologist, says, it's the consumer. It's the worshiper. We are authoritative. And God responds to our feelings and our desires. In simple terms, he writes, religion is essentially a tool for people to use to get what they want. Now, he's writing as a sociologist, not as a Christian here. As we went through the Old Testament, what do we always see that God's asking for from us? God showed grace. He always started with grace. God didn't say, you treat me the way you should and then I'll give you grace. God always started with grace and then he always asked for something. What did he ask for? Two things. Throughout the Old Testament, what did God ask for? Well, how, did people, how were people to reciprocate? Somebody other than Richard. How were people supposed to reciprocate? Worship and obey. Those are the two things he asked for. Romans 1.18, as God looks at the world, what does he say about it? 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Notice the two things God faults the world for. Godlessness, don't worship, and wickedness, don't obey. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, how does he describe us? For us there is but one God, from whom all things come. We worship the Creator, and for whom we live, we obey the Creator. There is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came. One Jesus, agent and creator, whom we worship, and through whom we live. Agent of salvation, for whom we live. And the question really becomes for each of us is this. As we go through life, the question is this. Currently, this year, what aspect of my life am I going to embrace the way God wants me to live, even though it's uncomfortable for me. You know, we're never going to be perfect, right? We're never going to have our act all together until the end of time. But in the meantime, one area of life at a time, maybe it's the kind of people I make friends with. Maybe it's the way I spend money. Maybe it's the kind of TV or sports I watch. In what area of life am I going to try and bring my desires more in harmony with God's rather than asking God to jump in and bring my world more in harmony with my desires. In what way can I renounce my own preferences this year in order to live for God? A third value we're embracing. I think so. A little help, Vivian? There we are. I don't know why. A third value that we want to embrace, is that we're transformed. Now, this is not so much in contrast with our culture as it is in contrast with Christian theology or recent Christian theology. Because recent Christian theology, for the last maybe 150, 200 years, Christians have all about, been about being forgiven. And we come to the cross and we're forgiven. And, and that's crucial and we live and die by that. But Protestant theology, Catholic theology, Christian theology, biblical theology has never been just about being forgiven. Christian theology has always been about being forgiven and transformed. Now, Martin Luther said something which is crucial but has been misunderstood. And the Roman Catholic Church opposed it for a long time because they thought he was saying something different. And then some of his extremist followers thought he was saying something different. So this has been really controversial. The sad thing is, it's really what's happened in the American church, pretty much, in American culture. Martin Luther said, we're saved through faith alone. Now, it's probably too small for you to see it, but there's a red period at the end. But Martin Luther never put that red period at the end. We're saved through faith alone. And the idea, the technical term for it, Latin-based term, theology, every, uh, every vocation is a uh, conspiracy against the lay people. Uh, the technical term is for this is for imputed. It's like, I have righteousness because I, my sin is imputed to Christ. Christ dies on the cross for my sin. Imputation. And the New Testament teaches imputation. The New Testament teaches that I'm forgiven because Christ died for me. But it doesn't teach just that. And there's a movement today uh, around America, been going on for decades, if not centuries, that call, calls itself the grace movement. Now, if you want to sell something that's not really a good product, you, you give it a good name. The grace movement. Now, who can be against grace? 
But the point is, this is not all that the gospel teaches, that Christ died for my sin, whether we was saved through faith or not. Because if you look, go back and read Martin Luther, if you look at Protestant theology, the reformers taught, the Catholic Church taught this. The Christian Church of the Bible has always taught, we're saved through faith alone, comma. Never saved through faith alone, full stop, or period. We're saved through faith alone, comma. Saving faith is never alone. And instead of focusing solely on imputation, we take the notion of imputation and combine it with union with Christ. Notice how Paul puts it in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who've died to sin. We've died to sin. How can we live in sin any longer? Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? We were buried with Christ through baptism and death in order that we might rise with Christ from the dead. The death he died, he died to sin. The life he lives, he lives to God. So therefore, the death we died, we died with Christ to sin. And the life we live, we live in union with the resurrected Christ. So grace has two parts, not just forgiven, but also transformed. And this really has to define all that we do. So this year, the question is, am I trusting Jesus for my salvation? But the other half of the question is, at the same time, is my life coming more into conformity with his? Did he die for me? Do I affirm that? Am I living with him? Do I affirm that and carry it out? A fourth value is community. Communal, not individualistic. I will quote here another sociologist, Robert Wuthnow, did the largest study in American history of small groups, the small group phenomenon. And here's what he found out about small groups. His conclusion is that people join small group to form community, to make friends. But it's a different kind of community than American history has ever had before. Community is what people are saying they're seeking when they join small groups. Yet the kind of community they create is different than the kind of community we've had in the past. Community is more fluid now. People move in, people move out. A community is more narcissistic and therapeutic. Its chief purpose is to support one another emotionally. He concludes that families and real community will never survive by the way we talk about community today. Community exists now to support the individual. The individual doesn't exist so much to support the community. This is not how scripture understands us. In scripture, in 1 Corinthians, what we read is, as we become Christians, you know, how is it for us when you came to faith? How is it, right? We pray to receive Christ. We give our lives to Christ. Christ lives in my heart. We talk about all this individualistic. In scripture, coming to faith, is entering, joining into a body, a human body, by analogy. One body has many parts. All of its parts form one body. So it is with Christ. The body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, I'm not a hand, I don't belong, it would not stop belonging just because of that. If the eye should say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head should say to the feet, I don't need you, 
That wouldn't be true. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, that its parts should have equal concern for each other. The metaphor in Scripture for becoming a Christian is not praying to receive Christ. The metaphor in Scripture for becoming a Christian is joining the body of Christ, of which we're all a part. So we seek to be communal, not just individualistic. And finally, we aim to be missional, not consumeristic. One pastor critiques the way that he used to do ministry. He speaks of the church he led. We became a provider of religious goods and services. We made pastors into managers and program directors, party planners. And in so doing, we kept them from being shepherds. Why do you go to any organization you join? Why do you join a club? Why do you join? Why do you go to? A, why do you join Costco? Why do you jo- go to a store? Because you like the goods and the services for the price it costs. And we naturally bring that kind of mentality, that consumerist mentality, over into the church. And then the church becomes an issue of oh, who gives the best products for the least price. And that's what Bob Hyatt was describing in, in his church. Is this the measure of a church, he asks? Professional musicians, laser light shows, uh, Starbucks franchises on campus and Krispy Kreme, uh, special music and elaborate children's programs? He replied, I'm your pastor, not your cruise director. My job is to open God's word and tell you what I think God seems to be saying to us through this book to our community. And then your role is to decide whether then you get involved with missions or homeless teens or the mentally ill or AIDS or the hospital or the nurture of children within the church community. It's a mission that we're all on. And now he says, as he describes the changes they made in their church, we see ourselves not as provider of religious goods and services, but as a missional covenant community. We're trying to establish a mindset that's not inward, but outward. Not to serve ourselves, but to serve others. He concludes, Jesus did not die to make you into a sanctified consumer. He died to bring you alive to God and to a desperately needy world. And we see, as Jesus was leaving, his last words to his disciples were always about this. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You are witnesses of these things, Jesus said. I'm going to send you what the Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And when you receive the power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. And then he continued. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. He didn't come simply to give us peace. He came to send us out. And the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. So the question really is, for us, who will know about Jesus? And how will the world be different because we lived before we die? It's not just about taking up space 
and caring for my family. It's about changing the world. And so these are the values that drive us. That we should be God-centered, biblical, transformational, communal, and missional. Let us put our heart and our minds and our lives together toward this aim this year. That we should make incremental improvement in each of these areas. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask you to be with us as we seek to be with you. That our lives individually and corporately might honor you. That our lives individually and corporately might be biblical. That we might experience individually and corporately transformation by your spirit and living Christ within us. That we might live together and serve together, rejoice together and grieve together as a community. And that with all these things, we might have some small influence on the people and the world around us. Empower us by your spirit and send us out. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.